If you have your Bibles, you can open them to Nahum chapter 2. We're going to end up making our way through the entirety of the chapter. This is um, a major section in the book of Nahum, and it's, and it's a major section because essentially what we see is God delivering on His promise of faithfulness. Um, God has made a promise to the people of Judah. He will comfort them. And one of the primary ways that we see Him comfort His people is by conquering their foes. And by conquering their foes genuinely in a rather um, precise and to some degree graphic way. And so what I'd like to do this morning is walk us through this section with an understanding that what God is doing is grace and mercy. And throughout this entire series, as we've walked through Jonah, as we've walked through uh, the first chapter of Nahum, we've seen some interesting things. And, and one of the things that I find to be most interesting is this clear correlation between judgment and mercy. In the book of Jonah, we saw Jonah go and preach judgment. And in his proclamation of judgment, we see God, in light of that, extend mercy to a people who were wholly unworthy. This very nation that we'll deal with today, just about 120, 140 years prior, God extended mercy to through a proclamation of judgment. And here we're going to see something quite different because as those years have passed and ultimately about 50 years after Nahum delivers this prophecy, God will conquer the nation of Assyria by the destruction of its capital, Nineveh. It is judgment. But what I hope that we can see this morning is that it is judgment that ultimately brings about mercy. It is judgment that ultimately brings about peace. And this judgment that we see on the nation of Nineveh, we can certainly look forward and see that judgment come not only to a nation that is wicked and deserving of wrath, but we will see that every enemy of God will be conquered by the Lion of Judah, that every enemy will be placed under his feet and he will rest there with them there forevermore. And so with that said, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? This is Nahum chapter two. And I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. And the word of God says this, the scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the walls. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened and the palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off, her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breast. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There's no end of the treasures or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lions and lionesses went, where, her, where his cubs were with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lioness. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Let's pray together. Father, what a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. 
And Lord, even as we approach this, even as we look into the, to the severity of your fury, Lord, may we remember that this severity is directed toward a people who do not know you, who have hated you from the beginning. And Lord, not only is it directed toward them, it is also done for those who are your namesake. It is done for those who you have called yours. It is done for those whom you have ransomed and redeemed. And Lord, may we even look at this in all of its fury and rejoice and clap our hands for in it we see the destruction of all of our foes. And so Father, we ask you to make much of yourself this morning. It's in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When I was doing student ministry, uh, I had a young lady walk up to me one day and it was required reading in the public school at this point to read the sermon by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Excellent sermon. Um, one to this day that when you read it, it strikes fear into the hearts of all those who do not know Christ. But I remember her walking up to me and as she's giving me this example, I was actually waiting to hear her elaborate on the wrath and fury of God as something that the church should delight in. This young lady had been in church her entire life. Her parents knew the Lord. And also, I think even at this point, which was rare in my day, at least in my time of doing student ministry, genuinely desired to see their children know the Lord. They taught them privately in their home. And she walked up to me and she said, we read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And as she is expounding upon this, she says, and so all of my friends were really concerned because this doesn't seem like the God that we say we serve. And she said, but I corrected them and I was waiting to hear an explanation of, uh, of rejoicing in the wrath of God toward his enemies. But essentially what she began to elaborate on is that this clearly is not the God that we serve. May that never be the case. And I stood there and I was genuinely so perplexed by this. I was so dumbfounded. I mean, genuinely dumbfounded. If you know me, it's very rare that I'm speechless. But I just sat there in that wait and thought, where have we failed? Where have we failed to teach the, the full person and scope and glory of God? And this morning, what I'd like to do is to address some things that are often forgotten. Perhaps you've heard it said that, that preaching is essentially just reminding there are things that we are slow to remind of. There are things that we shrink back from. And this morning, it is my eager anticipation and hope to not shrink back from anything that God has revealed, for anything that He has revealed is worthy of proclamation. And so this morning, what we will examine is a moment in history. And I do want to look at this from the historical account that we see here. And then I want to look at it from an eschatological perspective. I want to see from this particular text, how is it that God wages war on His enemies? Will He genuinely conquer every foe? And so let's look into Nahum chapter 2. Nahum chapter 2 starts with this moment and this, this, this proclamation of the scatterer has come up against you. Now, this language, the scatterer has come up against you, is literally this perspective that the destroyer has come. And we've seen the language of destroyer multiple times. One of the most clear moments, I think, that would come into our minds is the day of Passover in the Exodus account. The destroyer comes and anyone who does not have the blood of the lamb on their doorpost would ultimately be conquered. They would be done away. Their firstborn would be killed. But for the one who had the blood on the doorpost, that he would be spared. 
So the destroyer is not something abnormal. And what we essentially see here is that God begins to comfort his people with a promise. And this promise is one of of absolute faithfulness. He will bring to uh, fruition what he has promised. And it really does correlate, interestingly, with Nahum chapter one. As we walk through Nahum chapter one, essentially he begins to comfort the people of Judah by saying that this God that you serve, as as chapter one, verse two says, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. As Nahum comes to proclaim this to Judah, the immediate thing that he does is point all the people of Judah to the God they serve. They say, he says, look at him, look at him. See him as he is. See him as the one who is avenging and wrathful and stores up wrath for his enemies. See him as the one who will by no means clear the guilty. And then he paints this picture of the wrath and fury of God. And so it is with chapter two. In chapter two, he does not point them specifically to his attributes, but the outworking of them. In Nahum one, it's very clear, this is the God you serve. And there are natural repercussions to his glorious attributes. And one of those is he will indeed conquer all of his enemies. He does not store up wrath to leave it stored. He stores up wrath for a perfect execution of it in perfect time. And in Nahum chapter two, we see this reality come to fruition. He says that in this moment, the scatterer has come. The one who stores up wrath for his enemies, the day for his emptying of that wrath on them has come. He is faithful. He will do what he promised. And in this particular circumstance, Nahum is not pointing Judah to look at the attributes. He is pointing them to look at the outworking of those attributes. The scatterer has come. The destroyer has come against Nineveh. Now, remember, this book of Nahum is really intended to give comfort. Even the prophet's name means comfort. And so how is it that this language that is so harsh I mean, can you imagine just even this first phrase of verse one and it being given to you, like the scatterer has come up against you, the destroyer has come up against you, that the God of all wrath and fury who judges rightly has sent his destroyer to you. You can imagine the fear and trembling that would ultimately result from that from any sane man. From anyone who looks out on this and they see this wrath and fury coming their way, immediately trembling would take place. But what if, What if God is sending this scatterer ultimately against your enemies? What if this scatterer, as you read this, is essentially proclaiming that those who have ruled over me viciously, those who have done nothing but sin, trespass, and iniquity in all the land, what if you read this and it says that the scatterer is coming against those great enemies? It really is not so much of a surprise that this would be a comfort to them. It's the same comfort we have as someone would break into your home and the children rest under the authority and power of their father to protect them. That man who enters your home is not safe. Why? Because a father loves his children and will protect them. In the exact same way, what we see here is comfort given primarily through this proclamation of wrath and fury. He comforts them by promising an impending judgment. Now, it is important for us to note because we're gonna walk through this proclamation that he gives that Nahum wrote 50 years before Nineveh would be conquered. Now, it's important to note too that at this particular moment in history when Nahum wrote, Nineveh was not a weak nation. When we read the story of Jonah and we considered the historical context, it was in that day and time, Nineveh was weak. Nineveh was frail. 
God had sent earthquakes and things of that nature to do destruction to them. And as Jonah goes in to proclaim uh, 40 days and yet Nineveh will be overturned, Nineveh was not surprised by these realities. But you can imagine the prophecy of Nahum making its way uh, through some uh, facet to the nation of Nineveh. Would they have quaked at all in the height of their power? Of course not. They knew they were mighty. They had never known defeat up until this point. They had never known destruction. The idea that anyone was gonna come and conquer them was in actuality laughable. Who can conquer this great nation? And yet Nahum sends this prophecy at the height of power, at the height of Nineveh's strength. Assyria is strong. And Nahum prophesies a destruction that is graphic to say the least. And so what I'd like to do is walk through this. I'd like to walk through it for two reasons. Number one, I want to point to you, I want to show you the accuracy of God's prophetic word. Brothers and sisters, when God says it, it is done. It might as well have already come to fruition. His saying is his doing. So let's examine this this process of destruction of this capital city of Assyria, Nineveh. And I'm going to skip verse two. We'll come back to verse two, so don't think I'm skipping it. So in Nahum chapter three, it begins starting, well, really starting in verse one. It says, the scatterer has come up against you, man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. So let's just examine this for a moment because I really want us to see what's occurring because Nahum is not just giving information. He's painting this picture. He wants the people who read this to see clearly the destruction of Nineveh, seemingly step by step. And the very beginning of this is just like any war would essentially start. There are men on the walls. They are looking out against the nations. They are making sure that no enemy is coming against them. And as they stand and as they look out, there's essentially a proclamation. Go, man the ramparts, look out. I want you to watch and see what's gonna come. And the men are standing on the wall. And remember, these men have never known defeat in battle. They know that they are the greatest nation that has ever existed up until this point in their own minds. And they look out. And perhaps it is that in this moment, they begin to see, as verse three says, the shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. They see this great enemy coming against them and they're looking out, they're seeing all of these things and then they begin to dress themselves for battle. I love the language of verse one. It says, collect all your strengths, be strong, grab your weaponry, be prepared for war. I love what Matthew Henry says this. Essentially, his comment on this verse is, do the utmost you can. You shall not be able to avoid this stroke of judgment for there is no counselor against the Lord, nor any strong enough to stay his strength. What's somewhat laughable is God says, collect your strength, collect your might, O man. It reminds me of God's conversation with Job when he says, gird your loins, prepare for battle. Can you conquer Leviathan? Can you play with him like a bird? And Job in the midst of this knows, of course not. And yet God looks at them, he says, collect all your strength. I want you to see that in this moment, in the midst of your greatest power, I will cast you low. There will be nothing left of you. Gather all your strength, every bit of it, and watch as the whole creation seems to wage war against you. Collect your strength. And as they look out, they see this shield of these mighty men, these strong, vicious warriors with shields of red and their soldiers are clothed in scarlet. And they look out and they see this sea of scarlet making their way toward them. And perhaps it is in this moment, the men on the walls think, here comes another. We will trample them low like every other enemy that has come. And yet the prophecy continues. And it says, not only does he see these things, we see that 
that the city suburbs begin to be overtaken. If you look at verses, if you look at verse three and four, you see this language. It says the chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. And the whole concept of this city of Nineveh, which was this great, grand, circular city, is that all around it would be suburbs. All around it would be people who farmed and things of that nature. And essentially these men on their wall are looking out and watching these suburbs fall and fall rapidly. I wonder if those men on the wall begin to perhaps quake a bit as they watch their suburbs be conquered and conquered with ease. They watched smoke go up from those cities as God delivered them over to destruction. And perhaps it is that in this moment they began to think, what is it that we can do? And even the writer, Nahum, addresses this. He says, he remembers his offer, speaking of the king of Assyria or the commanders of the army. He says he remembers his officers. He remembers those mighty men, those strong, powerful warriors And it's so funny because at every turn, it seems as though everything is going awry. He says he remembers his officers, but they stumble as they go. They are essentially tripping over themselves as they're making their way to battle. And then they say, let's hasten to the wall. Let's prepare ourselves for war. But the siege tower is already set up. It's essentially this perspective that every single thing that can possibly go wrong is going wrong. There is no means of conquering this enemy because this enemy is far greater than Babylon waging war against them. The judgment of God has come upon them. And as the judgment of God comes upon them, there will be nothing that will prevent them from their destruction. So they gird themselves for battle. They prepare themselves. But the problem with conquering Nineveh is that their walls were so intricate and strong, there was no way possible to beat them. There was no way possible to climb them. But something interesting happens. And I'm convinced that ultimately this prophecy made its way to the king of Nineveh at the time because verse six says, the river gates are opened. The Tigris River ran through the city of Nineveh. That was, their, uh, that, that was the source of their aqueducts. They were super advanced for their time. And this city, this wall that protected them, even protected the river, was immediately conquered by a flood. I want you to uh, listen to this. It says from one uh, historian, by the way, who was an unbeliever, a secular historian, says this concerning the river. It said, the river not only broke down the walls of the city, it also inundated part of it. His recollection of the conquest of Nineveh is that this river flooded so greatly that it destroyed the walls that would protect them and also destroyed uh, the, the vast majority of the walls around them. So the gates fall, the walls are broken down. And essentially at this moment, they realize they're getting in. This conquest will not be stalled by our walls. Our gates will not protect us. And then in that same verse, it says the palace melts away. And if you could place yourself in this perspective, I mean, just consider for a moment being a citizen of Nineveh. You have hidden behind your walls safely for centuries. And all of a sudden the river floods, the gates are broken and the enemy is inside the camp. But not only is the enemy inside the camp, you're watching them flood into your nation's capital. But then behind you, you begin to hear the cracklings of fire. And you begin to hear people shouting and lamenting and moaning. Notice what the language says in verse six. It says, the river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. In this exact moment, the king of Nineveh, after hearing a prophecy that said, when the river floods, Nineveh will fall. This is what one historian says. He says, remembering an oracle to the effect that Nineveh would only fall when the river itself declared war against it. 
believed the oracle was fulfilled and abandoned any hope of saving himself. He built a gigantic funeral pyre in the royal precincts, heaped up gold and clothes, shut his concubines and eunuchs in a chamber that he had made inside of the pyre, and then burned himself, his family, his concubines and eunuchs, and the palace. Have you ever considered the prophetic precision? When God speaks, his saying is his doing. It's interesting, most historians say that Nahum must have been written decades after the fall of Nineveh, for it is far too precise. Brothers and sisters, we serve a precise God. It is no surprise that the God who has decreed the end from the beginning, when he says this is the way the nation will fall, that it falls in that exact way. And here we see the conquest, the defeat of Nineveh. There is nothing left. The king has abandoned hope. The citizens have abandoned hope. And just to be super honest with you, this is the end of Assyrian history. Just notice the language as we go on. It says, it says in Nahum 2.10, desolate, desolation and ruin, hearts melt and knees tremble, anguish is in all loins, all faces are pale. And then it goes on at the very end of verse 13, it says, the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Friends, when God pursues his enemy, he pursues them to utter destruction. There will be nothing left of them. There will be no messenger to herald their defeat. They are all conquered. And not only are they all conquered, it seems even more so as the text goes on in verses six and following, that they will be so greatly plundered that all their wealth will be taken away. If you could just consider for a moment Assyria as they go out and conquer the land, as they go out and make war against all these nations, immediately what they do is they defeat a nation is they gather all their wealth and they store it. They keep it for themselves. Notice what it says in verse eight. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turn back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. When Nahum gives this prophecy, he remembers the great wealth that they would have. And essentially what Nahum prophesies is there will not be a single gold coin left. And at least by the days in 2006, not a single gold piece was found inside of Nineveh. They could find nothing because when God destroys his enemies, he destroys them completely. There is nothing left. He has waged a great war and a war that he has been victorious in. And I want you to notice this because I know that I'm building this up, but this is vitally important for us to understand really the, the Christological understanding of this. I want you to see that when he defeats this enemy, he wages war to such a point that when his judgment comes, there is nothing left. Notice what it says in verse 10, desolate, desolation and ruin. This whole premise is to say the land has nothing left in it. There is no wealth in the land. There's no crops. There's no nothing. It has been laid waste. It is a barren land. He has waged such war that not even the land has withstood his fury. But then it goes on and it makes reference to the lions and the Assyrian soldiers were often referred to as the lions of Assyria. And there is not one left. Their little ones do not have food. He has conquered them completely. And then lastly, as I've already mentioned, not even a messenger is left. Assyrian history stops. But you know what's most interesting? As you look at this text, Inside of this great nation were a people. I mean, Assyrian history just ceases. It goes dark. But why is it that there were people inside of this city where God waged such war 
to make sure that not a single messenger was left. Why is it that Israel's history does not stop here? I mean, genuinely, at this point, you just conquer everything. Burn it to the ground. Make a, make a statement. Make sure there's not a single soul left alive. But God does something that's rather unique. And I want to point us back to Nahum chapter 2, verse 2, because as you see this great war being waged, you think, what could possibly survive such fury? God has set up the Babylonian kingdom to wipe out Assyria altogether. But let's not be mistaken, it is God's fury that directs them. He is conquering the nation, most certainly through the instrument of Assyria, but it is God's wrath that has come. But notice what verse 2 says, because in this, you have this really interesting moment that seems rather intrusive to the text. I mean, this account is so clear. It's this step-by-step, and even it violates to some degree or seemingly the the flow of the argument from verse 1 all the way to the end of verse 13. It's just this intrusion. And the intrusion is this. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. What is this grand intrusion? The grand intrusion is what I am convinced the whole premise of Nahum is. God will wage war upon his enemies and he will pursue them into utter darkness. But those who are his, those who are bought by the blood of Christ are not only unconquerable because he wages war for them, but they will always be preserved. I want you to notice because what we actually see here is God through judgment providing mercy for those who are his. I mean, just notice the language. He says, for the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob. What a firm contrast between casting down a nation so great into desolation and ruin. There is nothing left of them. And yet here we have these people that he has preserved. Now, it is important for us to note a couple of things historically here. First, It is God who sent Israel into Nineveh. It is God who sent Israel into captivity. He had an intended purpose. His intended purpose was discipline. And I do want us to see there is a vast distinction between God's fatherly hand and God's hand of wrath and judgment. God's fatherly hand does not pursue into darkness. It pursues into light. When God disciplines those who are his, he pursues them into more faithful obedience in living unto him. It is his disciplining hand, but when we see him exercise wrath and fury, when we see him exercise judgment, do not be surprised when you lose trace of the people that he has exercised wrath against. There will be nothing left of them. But it is his mercy that we see so lovely and beautifully commingled with his judgment. He judges a nation. He casts them low. But here we see God refers to a restorative glory for Judah as well, because Judah is not in captivity yet. And what's perhaps really intriguing about this is the Babylonians who are conquering Assyria right now are the same people that will come against Judah and conquer them. They will all be brought into captivity. But even then we can rest in this reality that as God conquers these nations, he conquers them for his good purpose to discipline those who are his, to make them more holy. We see this most certainly in the Christian life today, do we not? That God in his discipline of us, he will by his grace conform us to the image of Christ. I love the way that Romans lays this out. In Romans 8, it says he conforms us to the image of Christ. The whole concept there being that there be outer pressure that molds us into his image. But then in Romans 12, it makes reference to the transformation by the renewing of the mind that God takes the whole man and everything surrounding him to conform him into his image. 
And here we see this wrath demonstrated, but in this wrath, such clear mercy. And what mercy do you think it was as Israel watched Assyria fall, as Israel watched Nineveh be burned to the ground? How do you think they responded? Wouldn't it be reasonable to presume that they were rejoicing that their captives were defeated? Wouldn't it be reasonable for those who had defamed the worship places of God in their homeland as they watched their cities be burned, that they would applaud because God is merciful to them? Now, the reason this is so vitally important is because, brothers and sisters, this is not just a day of conquest. This is a clear demonstration of what will be. When we consider the conquest of Assyria, when we consider the conquering of Nineveh, we are not simply looking at a moment in history. We are looking at something that in a magnificent way typifies our Lord's return. We often look at the Old Testament and as we look at it, we look at this concept of typology that's forecasting and telling us to look ahead to the crucifixion of our Lord. But it is quite rare that we see in the Old Testament a a moment that says, look to his return, look to him conquering all his foes, look at him laying waste to all of his enemies. And here we see that. Here we see this grand picture. Much like in Jonah, we saw the indication of the first advent of our Lord, one who would come preaching with the desire to see repentance, a far greater prophet than Jonah ever was. But in the same sense, we have Nahum coming and he forecasts beautifully the conquering of all his foes. This is not at his first advent, this is at his second. And I wanna do a brief examination of this because as we look at this section of scripture, particularly in Revelation chapter 19, we see this conquering one, the one who comes, the one that is infinitely more powerful and greater than Babylon could ever hope to be. This is the one who laid Babylon low. Notice what the text says, really starting in Revelation 19. I wanna start in verse in verse 11 and making our way forward. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and, his, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the Lion of Judah. And no lion of Assyria and no enemy of the church will stand when he comes wielding that great sword, the word of God, to conquer all of his foes. He is full of wrath and fury. And friends, when we see him lay waste to a nation, we should look forward and say, not just the nation, but all the things that are wicked and hateful and vicious here below will be laid waste under his feet. When we see him conquer, he conquers sin, he conquers death, he conquers the world, he conquers the flesh, and most certainly he conquers the enemy, Satan, who is the devil. There will be none left in his wake. His second coming will be so precise. His second coming will be so furious that there will be no enemies left of him. They will all be underneath his feet. He is faithful and true. The judge of all the earth will do what is right. And brothers and sisters, what we often miss, what we often miss and for some reason even are apologetic about, may it never be that we apologize for the fury of our God, for it is his mercy to us. 
In His mercy, every enemy that comes will be conquered and done away with. The church of God will have peace established. We do not speak of peace. We do not speak of justice. We do not speak of a home in a figurative sense. And we do not speak of it as one that will not be bought by blood. And it was first and foremost bought by the blood of the lamb. But brothers and sisters, we need to remember that it will also be at the blood of his enemies. He will conquer all of his foes. Brothers, why is it that we see this God of fury and we are appalled? May that never be the case, dear saints. It is His fury. It is His wrath. It is that sword, the Word of God, that we rest in. The reason that we gather here today is because we know that there will be a day where true peace will be established, where there will be no enemy at the gates. And we know that day will come because the Lion of Judah will indeed make it so. He bought that peace, most certainly with His blood. But even then, we see it in the complete destruction of his foes, there will be nothing left. Now, the final point of this, and I think it's rather important, is there is a phrase that's mentioned inside of this section of Jonah that says, I am against you. And I want to make something quite known to us. When we consider this phrase, I am against you, this goes back to the concept of sinners in the hands of an angry God. There are some of you here that need to hear these words. I love James Montgomery Boyce says it better than I can. He says, But it is not only to Nineveh that he speaks those words. He speaks them to all who sin against him, whether in Nineveh, Rome, New York, Philadelphia, or wherever the sinner may be. If God says that to you, you should know that it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of such an angry God. Hear me when I say this. There are only two ways to view the wrath of the Lamb. You view it and you say, oh, it's mercy to me. He protects me. He provides for me. He delivers me into an everlasting kingdom. Or you are the one he says, I am against you. And I would plead with you, flee from the wrath to come. This is not a figurative wrath. I hope that you saw the precision of those prophecies because what we read in Revelation is just as precise. There will be a day where judgment will come. And the only means of redemption is to flood, is to fly to this one who is able to save you to the uttermost, who not only exhibits this wrath, but at the exact same time, this is the wrath that he absorbed that we might be in his kingdom. And so, dear friend, hear me. If the Lord says, I am against you, there is only one to flee to. His name is Christ Jesus. He is the same one that will tread you underfoot if you do not flee to him. So may we all flee from the wrath to come. And when we see it, if we be in him, may we clap our hands and rejoice for he is exhibiting mercy to those who are his by judging all of his enemies. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning rejoicing in a furious God, in a one who will by no means clear the guilty, in a one who stores up wrath for the day of judgment. Lord, knowing that this is the fury that will provide peace for his people. Lord, not only do we see that fury exhibited at the cross of Christ most clearly, we see there that if it wasn't for Jesus absorbing this, then we would be under it. And so, Father, I am grateful that you have given eyes to see that those who read this prophecy might run, and they might run to Christ who can provide a shelter for them. And Lord, for those who are in you,
who, absor- who, who observe this mercy through judgment. And Lord, may we rejoice. May we never shrink back from giving clear explanation of our God who is good and merciful and gracious, but who by no means clears the guilty. Lord, we will not be ashamed of your justice. Lord, help us worship in the light of it. It is in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen.